Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy towards us. God, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I pray that you would cling us to you. God, that you would tie us to you. Lord, that we would always see you despite our circumstances, uh, despite our thoughts, our emotions, whatever it may be, God. Let us lay them at your feet and see that you are God overall. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, If you haven't had the chance, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Cole. I'm the student minister here at Cross. Obviously, I'm not Taylor. Uh, I try to dress a little bit like him today, you know, Uh, but uh, to, to fool you for sure. Uh, but I'm Cole, uh, and so it's a pleasure to be able to be here with you this morning and diving into God's Word uh, together. And so over the last month or so, what we've done as a church family is we've walked verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And throughout that time, what we've come to know is a few things about Paul in this letter is that Paul is writing this letter from prison and that his intentions in this letter are for us to know where we find invincible joy from, that it's not found in our circumstances, it's not even found in family, but it's found in him. And so this week what we're going to do, we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and flip over in your Bibles there with me, uh, we're going to begin there here in just a moment. But last week Taylor uh, talked about from from Philippians chapter 1, how to live the gospel-worthy life in the face of trial and persecution. And so this week what we're actually going to do is see how Paul continues in that thought, but really talking about the church and how does humility and unity interact within the body. And so to kind of get us going uh, in, that, in that mental space, I want you to think of maybe about maybe what you did yesterday. Some of you are like me, and uh, maybe you did some yard work yesterday. It was a little bit cooler, so that was nice. Um, maybe you did some of that. But as well, you probably, if you like football at all, uh, you probably gathered around a TV to watch college football. Now, this is the thing. Whenever we watch college football, if we're not doing it by ourselves, we enjoy doing it with other people who like the same team as us. Am I right or am I right? Right? We, like, you're not going to be an Alabama fan and go hang out at a Georgia fan's house to watch the Alabama game, right? Because all they're going to do is, is boo you down and be like, they don't want your team to win. And so, but rather what we do is we gather around other people that, that like the same team as us to really be able to celebrate or win or be in agony in a defeat, right? And so we, we gather around in unity around this common purpose that we both enjoy the same team, watching the same team win or lose. It's so easy for us to do that, but rather for us, it's harder sometimes to gather around what the church should be gathered around, and that is the gospel. And that leads us to our central truth for this morning is that our unity in Christ leads us to unity and humility within the church. Our unity in Christ leads us to unity and humility within the church. And what we're going to do, we're just going to lay through uh, really the first four verses of chapter two to be able to see this. So if you'll look down at the scripture with me as we dive in, starting at verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we know that your word is truth, uh, and to know you is to know truth. And so, Lord, I pray that today that your word would be as it always is, that it is living sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to our soul and our spirit. God, speak to us through your word this morning. 
let you be exalted above all else. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first thing that we do when we jump into this passage, that really the first thing that we see is that the church is united around the gospel. That the church is united around the gospel. And so to see that, let's look back down at verse 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of, in full accord and of one mind. So Paul here is calling the believers to think about what has been accomplished for them in Jesus. And so let's look at each of these things that Paul talks about, the way that he lays them out. So the first is this encouragement in Christ encouragement in Christ. Paul is telling the believers that they must look back to the greatest victory that has happened in their life. That their greatest victory wasn't accomplished by them, but rather it would be accomplished by Jesus. You see, through our sin, we have distanced ourselves from God. Our sin has created this great chasm, this distance that we could never make shorter or even bridge our way across of, but rather the Son would step down out of heaven into his creation and would live a perfect life and die a death that we deserve. See, Jesus deserved everything, but rather he took death in our place. See, that is the greatest challenge that we can ever face, and Jesus has accomplished and defeated that greatest challenge, and that should lead us to have encouragement, not only in that challenge, but in every challenge we face day in and day out. You see, Paul, we must be reminded that he is writing from prison, a place for all of us that we would see a place of despair, turmoil, and hardship. But what does Paul have in these moments? He has joy, invincible joy that is not dependent upon his circumstance, but is solely dependent upon Jesus. See, he is, has joy because the gospel has continued to go out to the guard as he is there in prison, but also by people who don't even have good intentions about sharing the gospel. It is going out and therefore his joy is being completed. So we have encouragement in Christ, his victory over our sin and our death, no matter whatever circumstances we have. And so encouragement in Christ, the second thing that he says is comfort in love. So jumping right back into the gospel, Paul is pointing us to the gospel in every single part of this passage. And so what we see is that in, in comfort and love, we have experienced an unconditional love. A love that is not based upon what you have done or what you haven't done, your, your greatest victory or your utmost defeat. Rather, it's solely based on the goodness of the Father. It's based upon his character. It's not based upon you and me, but based upon him. And see, in the gospel, we find comfort knowing that through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, we are safe and secure with him forever. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. For if I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, we have comfort in Christ because he has perfectly atoned for our sin and he holds us from now and to forever. It is perfectly secure. We have comfort in the fact that we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin, but he paid it for us. We have comfort in love. The third thing that he says is that we have participation in the spirit. See, this is this Holy Spirit that Taylor talked about last week that indwells each and every believer. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that is continually transforming us day in, day out, the renewing of our minds that we might live for Jesus. The Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin. He is bringing to remembrance scriptures that we have memorized, scriptures that we have studied for the betterment of ourselves being come, becoming conformed to the image of Christ. 
And so every believer has been sealed with this Holy Spirit as a promise of the inheritance that will come in glory. Ephesians 1 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. See, every believer has partnership through the Holy Spirit. We have a guarantee, but also this affection and sympathy that he begins to talk about. This affection is what he's already talked about, this encouragement and comfort in Christ. We have felt God's love. We have felt his affections for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ would die for us. He would lay out his life, and this sympathy could really be interpreted more like as mercy, that we would not get what we deserve, that God would withhold his wrath from us in Christ, we have experienced the fullness of God's mercy because we deserve his eternal wrath, but yet we get the, the love of the Father. And this is what spills over into our earthly relationships. So here we see Paul pointing the Philippian believers to remember what they have in common, and that is Christ. Christ is what unifies them. And so from here, we can truly see that when Paul was writing here, he wasn't questioning these if statements. So if there is any, He's not questioning them, but rather he is saying that they are markers of true assurance of faith. See, having encouragement in Christ, comfort in his love, participation in his spirit, feeling the affection and the mercy of God are realities for each and every believer. There is no questioning it. It is assured. They are guarantees. It's as if this afternoon you're going to go out. Maybe some of you are going to watch your favorite pro sports team. For me, it's the Panthers. I know we suck. It's okay. All right, but, uh, but you know, like with, with every pro athlete, when they step into their locker room, there's probably a few things that they have. They step in and, and they come into their locker room to have their locker with their name on it, right? It has their name, their number, and then in that locker is their jersey that has their name on it. And then they walk out onto the field to hear their name called. Even if they sit on the sidelines, their name is still put up on the big screen and people are cheering for them. These are guaranteed things that will happen week in, week out for these pro athletes as they step onto a field, as they step into a locker room. But the thing is, is that if you're not on the team, you don't guarantee that. You're not guaranteed that. You don't get that treatment. Me and you don't walk into those locker rooms and see our name on a locker. We don't walk into those locker rooms and see our name on a jersey. We don't walk onto the field and hear our name shouted aloud above the speaker. The players are guaranteed that in the same way we as believers are guaranteed every part of this that Paul is talking about for us in the gospel. It isn't an if, but it is a guarantee. See, the believers had to be reminded that they must be grounded first in the truth of the gospel. That Jesus would lay down his life and would give us grace that we don't deserve. Each of these affections, this sympathy, this mercy, the encouragement, the comfort, we don't deserve that. But yet he has given it to us. And now what does Paul do? He begins to start telling us how does this play out in our lives. So Paul is calling them to have the same mind. So you're talking about the same mind. They, they must strive to have a common understanding of who the gospel, who Jesus is in the gospel, and have genuine agreement surrounding the gospel. This would be one reason, y'all, while we practice expository preaching. What that means is that we expose the text. The text is what drives the message, not the message driving the text. We don't come up with a topic throughout the week that says, hey, let's just talk about love and then just find a passage that matches it. But rather we say, this is what the scripture says. And so let us talk about what God wants us to know about him from the text. 
But the problem is that there are so many preachers and teachers out there today that will have a gospel that is contrary to the true gospel. A gospel that, that kind of kind of goes out, that tickles your ears, that sounds so good, it has just enough Bible in it to make it sound believable. Things that say like, hey, you will be able to get this or you won't feel this way or all this will just vanish from your existence. Like you won't have that pain anymore. And while Jesus is certainly there and he is comforting us in our time of need and he is there, he doesn't promise that things are just going to disappear or that things are just going to be easy. He doesn't promise those things, but rather he promises us himself. He gives us himself. See, this week I was spending too much time on Twitter. Um, and so I, I was actually stumbled across this quote and I was actually going back to look uh, where it came from. I could not find it. Uh, but the, the words ring so true uh, for us as we think about what does it look like to have sound doctrine? This is what it said. It says, someone who preaches a false gospel commits murder for eternity. Someone who preaches a false gospel commits murder for eternity. Y'all, when we talk about the gospel, it's not just about the here and now, but it is someone's eternity, the everlasting life with or without Jesus that we are talking about. And so we must be grounded in the word, have the same mind, going after the same doctrines, letting the word expose our beliefs rather than our beliefs trying to be imparted into the word. The scripture has the final authority. Being of the same mind is knowing that there is only one true gospel and its implications for our lives. It isn't simply just a here and now issue, but rather it's an eternity issue. The second thing that Paul calls us to have, not just is unity in the same mind, but that we would have the same love. This is an agape love. This is if you've been around the church, you've heard that word probably. And so one of the, the things that we have to know about this love is that it's not based upon emotion. It's not purely based on just your emotions that you have, but rather of will. It's not one of preference, but it's one of devotion. It's one that is there no matter the thick and thin. This means that we treat each person equally, no matter the circumstances that we come in contact with, no matter the belief system, no matter the hurt that you felt from them, whether it's in or outside of the church, we extend the same love and affection to each and every person. And that's hard, am I wrong? It's difficult, right? When someone hurts our feelings, we don't wanna be very nice to them. It's not our natural tendency. But even this week in our, in our student ministry, we're walking through the book of Acts. And so we talked about Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, what we really see is Peter has this moment where he, he has this vision from God and he goes to see this man named Cornelius who isn't a Jew. And what he sees is that the gospel, in the gospel, God has no partiality, meaning that it is for all people everywhere. No matter what they look like, sound like, whatever it may be, the gospel is for everyone. We cannot have partiality. We cannot be prejudiced towards others. James, the half-brother of Jesus, didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. This is what he writes in his letter in chapter 2. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Hey, good job. Pat yourself on the back. But verse 9, but if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. It doesn't matter if you love some people the right way. You have to love all people the right way. You have to love like Jesus has loved you. That spills out no matter the circumstances or anything like that. We must be of the same love. The next thing he talks about is being of one accord. Being of one accord. And when he talks about being of one accord, what that looks like is that we are united in purpose. That our purpose is the same, that purpose is to glorify Christ both here and now as we receive the gospel, but then also in taking the gospel to the nations. 
See, each and every believer is called to be a part of this, to be on mission for Jesus. There is no sideline Christian. You're always in the game. You're always on mission. You are called to be on united in purpose, on mission with God as he seeks to have us proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what he calls us to do in Acts 1.8. Our students could probably recite this out to you like that. We've said it every week the entire fall. It says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are called to be of one accord on one mission with one purpose, and that is to reach the world with the gospel. And the last thing he says right here is that we would be of one mind. This is almost forming the full circle. That what would happen would be is that we would have the same mind and sound doctrine. We would have the same love and loving others the way Christ has loved us. And we would be on mission, have the same purpose together. But now that it would come full circle and we would truly be united. See, this is the unity that Paul desires for the Philippian church, but then as well for us today to experience and to have. Unity built upon the gospel is essential, y'all, for not just our life, but the vitality of our life and the vitality of the church. If we're not surrounded by the gospel, if we're not coming together around the gospel, we come for a broken foundation. And this is exactly what has kind of happened in our society, in our church culture. We've allowed preferences within the church to kind of get up and in our face. While we're all entitled to our own preferences, preferences oftentimes lead us to disunity and far too often that leads to a bigger division and split. See, instead of longing to have all things in common and to love each other and to be on mission together, we elevate our preferences to the object of our worship. They become our idols. It's not as if we have a gold calf up here, but rather it's the things that are in our thoughts and our minds and that play out in our actions that now become our idols. These preferences do. Let's give a couple of examples of what this may look like. Uh, it may be that you uh, don't like, or maybe the, the music isn't upbeat enough. Maybe it's not going to fill your soul enough by having the drums hit hard or whatever it may be. Maybe you don't like that. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you want it to be more soft and you want it to be more hymn-based or whatever it may be. And to that, I would say yes and amen to both. Right? But what happens is that when we elevate our idols, or we elevate our preferences to the object of our worship, we begin to say, okay, instead of all of us gathering together, what we're going to do is we're going to form two different services with two different preferences. Now what happens is functionally you have two churches meeting in one location. Because you'll never once step foot in the opposite preference that you enjoy. I've lived in that. I've seen it and I've seen the havoc it wreaks on churches. It's difficult. No one wants to ever comply. No one ever wants to be willing to go to the other service to understand the other side. You know, we have to, as older believers, look to the younger believers and ask, why do you want it this way? Why, like, what, what about this encourages you? And then for us as younger believers in our faith, we have to ask, okay, well, why do you enjoy this? What makes this so special? And then how do we come together to unify around the gospel despite our differences in preference? We cannot be two churches meeting in one location. We must be one church meeting in one location. Or maybe it's something like this. Maybe a sermon steps on your toes, right? That happens a lot, especially when you actually preach the word. It hurts. It's not easy sometimes. But what happens is maybe with our preferences, we don't want it to be very harsh. We don't want things to people to step on our toes. We don't want sin to be brought to light. And so what happens is we begin to gossip about the things that are being talked about in church, the scripture that's being preached. That's too harsh. I don't want that. Maybe I should go somewhere else. Rather than gossiping, what we should do is really put, set ourselves under the authority of scripture and say that scripture has the final say in my feelings, they can go out the window. Because my feelings ultimately a lot of times lead me to lies. 
on things that are not true, but God's word will always remain true. We must submit ourselves to the authority of scripture no matter how much it hurts. Or maybe it's even that we let our preferences of dress be what happens and we start pushing people away who don't look like us, dress like us, whatever it may be. And what happens is, is the church becomes a social club and not the church. Should it never be so? We should want people that look completely different than us, people who dress differently than us, because we are all united around the gospel. See, these things should never be so. We should never have moments where our preferences elevate to what is ultimate. Jesus is the only thing that is ultimate, the only person that is ultimate. Not our preferences. You see, Philip Melicotten said it like this, talking about a division in, in, in the church. He talked about how wolves would fight dogs. There's a battle to be played. And so these wolves, what they do is they send out spies into, to, to see what's going on in the dog camp. And as these spies go to the dog camp, they, they begin to see there's a lot of like little yappy dogs. Y'all know what I'm talking about, them little chihuahuas. Yeah, y'all there? Like the dogs that nip at your heels and they're like, man, I ain't really worried about all them. And so they're, they kind of continue to look. And so that now they begin to see these bigger dogs. Right? They see the massive, they see the husky, they see even the, the chocolate lab that you all love um, and, the, and the golden retriever that we all love. And so he, they begin to see these bigger dogs and now they begin to say, well, well may, maybe there is going to be a fight. Maybe we will actually have a battle. Like it's not just these little dogs that we're going up against, but there's these big dogs. But what begins to happen is they see them start to march. And as they start to march in unison, what, the way, what they observe is that these dogs they're not facing forward, but rather they're gnashing their teeth and they're biting at each other's throats side by side. They cannot win a battle if they're fighting each other. And the sad thing is that's what the church can oftentimes be like, where we begin to fight each other rather than fighting against the enemy of sin and death and proclaiming the gospel. We get so caught up in preferences to where we fight each other rather than being all in on the gospel. See, the gospel must be our everything. Must be our everything and that we would not gather around preferences or anything else besides the clear proclamation of the gospel. So we must be united around the gospel. Let's continue reading in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Point number two, the church serves others in humility. The church serves others in humility. You see, this unity that Paul is writing about has a clear outworking in our lives. He says that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That means we do nothing for the betterment of just ourselves. We don't build ourselves up. We don't stand up on a platform to make ourselves be elevated. We don't try to feed our pride. We can't be let pl our pride blind us into making a name for ourselves. When we live for a name for ourselves, we, what we begin to do is what Spurgeon talks about, living in a vain glory, an empty glory, a glory that has nothing to do and has no part in eternity. A glory that, that will ultimately fail us and have no eternal significance, no matter how good it makes you feel. No matter how good it makes you us feel. But rather in contrast to what Paul says is that we should in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. And so here what we need to do is make sure we have some clarity around this word humility and being humble because many times we talk about humility, we talk about lowering ourselves and so that we should say yes and amen. But a lot of times what actually happens in our lives is we begin to devalue ourselves. 
we devalue ourselves, degrading ourselves, that we might not look so like we are high, but rather we would be low. Think about this in marriage. In marriage, it is the merging of two lives, both equally valuable and unique. And while both individuals are individuals, they are united together through Christ and they seek the good of each other. What happens is you take time to get to know one another. You get to take time to know how do you love one another. And so one of the ways this, this plays out and a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever read this book, heard of this book, but it's like the five love languages by Gary Chapman. Okay, I was on staff with him, so I had to read it. You know, it's gotta happen. But in that book, he talks about a couple of different uh, love languages that we kind of come to see in our lives. And so there's things like words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, gifts, all these types of things that, that we feel loved, the way we feel loved. But what happens is, is this, what's easy for us is to love people the way we want to feel loved. It's easy for us to do that. While never taking the time to know how does someone else feel loved? Because it's not all about how, what's easy for me to where I can go kick my feet up on the couch, but rather that I would love someone intentionally to where they feel loved and not just the way that I think that they should feel loved. That it shouldn't be based upon me, but it's based upon them. So you don't have to devalue yourself in order to love other people, but rather you have to know how you should love other people. And we love each other more like Jesus does. You think about the other person more than you think about yourself. This is in your message notes, uh, but something that we really should get clear, this is kind of laying all that out, is that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking less, but thinking about yourself less. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. That we would not be as concerned with ourselves as we are with other people. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, is it not? Jesus is, is perfect, but yet he would lay down his life. He would see us run away from him in our sin, in the passions of our flesh, but yet he would enter into his creation and die a death that we deserve. We'll talk about this next week, but Jesus would humble himself to being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus died a public and humiliating death to have you and to have me to atone for our sin that we could be unified with him, that we could have him and be with him for eternity. If this isn't what humility looks like, y'all, I don't know what we can say humility is. Because we did not deserve any value. We did not deserve a thought. We have been disobedient to God from the start, but yet he pursued us. See, this is the kind of humility that we need to emulate, that should pour out of our lives, a humility that serves others, that when we are humble, we realize that life isn't about us, church isn't about us, the gospel isn't about us, it's about Jesus. And we gather together around that, that we would glorify Christ and build up the body. You see, each week you'll find people, just as Ashton said earlier, that we'll find people all around the facility. And one thing you won't see is student ministry on Wednesday nights, the people who serve there. But around the facility, you'll see Cross Kids, the welcome team, communion, prayer team, load in, load out, worship, tech, all for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. Not for their own personal benefit, but rather for the benefit of the whole body. That's humility. It's not about us. And C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity. Let this sink in for just a moment. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. 
if you, dis, if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. See, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. True humility isn't about trying to tell everybody how humble you are or try to put that on display. It's thinking about yourself less. And so when we walk in true humility of our lives, it's marked by, with, marked by humility without ever speaking about humility. See, in verse 4, Paul writes, Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We cannot be consumed with the things that only bring us gratification. We cannot be all about ourselves in that personal yes and amen gratification. I feel good. We have to see beyond ourselves and into the lives of others because that is what Jesus has done for us. He looked into our lives, saw the mess and cleaned it up. Think about this. The night before he was going to die, Jesus took off his cloak, got low and washed the disciples' feet. Something a servant that the master of the house would never have done. But yet he takes the low place and he washes his disciples' feet. He serves the disciples in this way. You see, Jesus, what he's done is he has served them in a modeling way of how he would ultimately begin to then lay himself low and be hung on a cross that he didn't deserve. You see, when we're humble, this doesn't mean that we neglect our own health or even our spiritual growth. But that we, just as we value those things for ourselves, we must value them for other people. Think about this. What does Paul say? Think not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You still have needs. You still need food, water, shelter to grow spiritually. And just as you long for those things for yourself, you need to long for those things, value those things for other people. See, we serve others out of a true humility that leads us back to our unity in Christ. And when we are truly humble as Christ is humble, we value other people. We long for everyone to be gathered around the gospel. We, we value for other people to be loved equally. And we value for each and every one of us to be on the same mission, the same purpose of the gospel. Church, and unity in Christ drives our humility, and that same humility produces unity within the body. Show me a church that doesn't serve, and show me a church that is disunified. Show me a church that shows love and affection by serving each other. Show unity. And so, well, as we begin to close this morning, we must realize that humility and unity don't just happen overnight, right? It's not that easy. It's, it's something that has to happen as a result of the gospel, the Holy Spirit working within us to grow us in these areas of humility and unity. And since this is a grace of the Holy Spirit working in us, now we must think, oh, how can we help cultivate this as the Holy Spirit works in us? There's five ways that I believe that we can do this. And the first is this, that we grow in humility by reflecting on the cross of Christ. We grow in humility by reflecting on the cross of Christ. See, when we reflect on the cross of Christ, we see that we were helpless, that we deserve no help, but yet Christ would do everything to win us back to the Lord, that he would bridge the gap, that in the cross he would die a death that we deserve. And that is more than enough to show us that we are not in the high place and that he is. Point number two is grow in humility by reflecting on the glory of Christ. We must reflect on who God is. What is his character? What does he say about himself? that God is good, gracious, merciful, that he is all-powerful and all-knowing. God is a God that is distant from us. He is so much powerful, more powerful than us, but yet he is still so close and intimate with us. We must reflect on his glory. Thirdly, we must grow in humility by reflecting on God's word, which reveals to us Christ's humility and exaltation. 
what this means is that we must look at God's word to depend on who he says that he is rather than what an experience tells us. Because an experience may tell us that God is not near, that God doesn't love me, that he doesn't care for me. But God's word always points us back to the fact that he loves me, he cares for me, and he is here for me. Our experience will lead us astray, but God's word will lead us to truth. The fourth way is that we grow in humility through prayer. In the New City Catechism, over the last couple of really months, we've started to talk about this, this moment of prayer. And so I got to deal with one of these questions. And in prayer, what we saw is that it shows our dependency upon God. Prayer is our dependency upon God, showing him that like we have no hands in this. We have no power over the circumstances. We can't do it, but God can. And so we are dependent upon him. And in our dependency, it shows that we must be humble because he is the one who holds the keys. He's the one that's in the driver's seat. He's the one who has the power. And the fifth way that we can grow in humility is through serving others. Talk about that next steps card at the beginning. Y'all, if you're not on a serve team, go on there, check one out. See what you, what do you think that you would be good at? How do your giftings serve the church? Because we, as we serve others, we begin to see how much we have been served. And out of an outflowing of Christ's service to us, we will serve others in humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you for your goodness and your mercy towards us. Lord, that you would take our place on the cross. Lord, that you would produce a church. God, that you would grow a church based on your work and not our own. God, it is you who does the work in us to bring us together through the gospel. Lord, and it is you who grows us in humility as we reflect upon your gospel, as we reflect upon your word, as we reflect on just who you are. God, you are so good and so deserving of our worship. Let our unity give you glory, God. Let our humility give you glory. Let everything that we do push us back to who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray.